Hello, good morning, good afternoon, good evening. My name is Father Andrew Mattingly. I am a Catholic priest in Kansas City, Missouri, and this is a podcast where I post homilies and random other stuff that I might teach or speak about. Hope you find something useful and maybe even inspiring. God bless you. There's a man who asks a very interesting question of Jesus. He says, Lord, will only a few people be saved? Will only a few people be saved? This is a question that has interested theologians actually throughout all of church history. And there's been various speculative theories and hypotheses regarding whether there's a lot of people who will be saved or only a small portion of people will be saved. Others have even proposed that, in the end, everyone will be saved. In the early church, there was a a theologian named Origen who lived in the mid-200s. And at a certain point in his very prolific writing and theological career, he proposed a hypothesis that came to be known as the transmigration of souls. Basically, he proposed the idea that at the very end of time, even those who had ended up in hell and even the fallen angels will be restored to God. But at the very end of all things, everyone who had fallen will, will be restored to God. And the church very resoundingly condemned this proposition as heretical, that this is not something that we can believe based on what scripture reveals. That very clearly in the teaching of Jesus and elsewhere in the New Testament, the idea of an eternal place of punishment is just unavoidable. Jesus speaks and preaches about it many times himself. So that was Origen. A couple hundred years after him, you have the most prominent figure of the early church, St. Augustine. St. Augustine proposed sort of the opposite. 
He basically said, based on the words of Jesus in the Gospels and other things that we read in the New Testament and the book of Revelation, it seems as though the great majority of humanity is going to end up in hell and only a very small portion will make it to heaven. And that by and large was the general view throughout the centuries up until the 20th century when certain theologians kind of revived different aspects of what Origen and others had proposed in the early church. The church, just to be clear, says that scripture doesn't tell us, you know, a percentage of how many people make it to heaven and how many people don't. There's, there's nothing in Revelation that gives us an idea, oh, it's 99.8% that make it to heaven and, you know, 0.2% that don't, or only 2% make it to heaven and 98% don't. That's, that's not revealed anywhere, so, so there's no official teaching on this. We have, we have no idea exactly what the specific percentages or, or numbers are. One thing, though, that we do know for certain is that God has a desire for everyone to be saved. This much is very clear. We read about this in the New Testament. God desires that all come to be, or all are saved and come to knowledge of the truth. It's even clear and hinted at in the Old Testament. We heard a little bit of that in our first reading from Isaiah, that God's desire is to gather all the nations to himself, not just the people of Israel, but all the nations to himself, to gather all people into heaven. That's his desire. Similarly, we know for certain that he's given us free will and that it's very possible that we use our free will to reject him. He's not going to force heaven on us or force salvation on us if we don't want it. If we want to live for ourselves instead, he allows us to do that. So when this man comes up to our Lord in the gospel today and he asks him, Lord, will only a few people be saved? The Lord doesn't answer his question directly. And he doesn't say, oh, yeah, it'll, it'll be 3%, <laughs> or it'll be 5,000 people, or it'll be... He, he, doesn't, he doesn't give him what he wants. He answers indirectly. He says, strive to enter by the narrow gate. Strive to enter by the narrow gate. What do we make of this? I'm going to unpack that in a minute, but before I do that, I want to pose the question, what was the motivation behind this man asking this question of our Lord. Why did, he, why did he come up to Jesus and why was he interested in this particular question? Why did he ask him, Lord, will only a few people be saved? There, it's impossible to know for certain what his motivation was. We can, we can have different conjectures. Perhaps he was just legitimately curious. He just really wanted to know, like, are there a lot of people that get saved or only a few? It could, it could be that he wasn't curious, but his friend was, but his friend was too embarrassed to ask the Lord. So he asked him, hey, can you ask him, like, <laughs> only a few people be saved? Maybe that's why. There are many, many reasons we could pose, but I'll, I want to throw out to you two possibilities, two possible motivations of why this man was concerned about this question and why he wanted an answer from Jesus as to how many people will make it to heaven. The first possibility that came to mind as I was thinking about this is that this man perhaps had lived a life of great sin. He was a great sinner. He had done many things of which he was ashamed. And he was wondering if there was any hope for salvation for himself. 
Because if Jesus had given him a percentage and said, oh yeah, only 1% of people are saved, he may have taken that and said, well, certainly I'm in the 99%. I look at my life and what I've done, and there's no hope for me. And he would have potentially fallen into despair. So perhaps he asked this question because he was hoping that the Lord would, would give a very large percentage of people so that he could have hope that oh, maybe, maybe even for me, with all the things that I've done, maybe even for me there, there's hope. On the flip side, he may have asked this question of our Lord, hoping that he would say, oh yeah, 99% of the people are saved, specifically so that he could be reassured that, all right, as long as I do the bare minimum possible in my service of God, I'll probably make it. So he was asking the question in order to figure out where's the minimum bar that I can strive for so that I can avoid hell. And he, so he would have been hoping for the Lord to say, oh yeah, pretty much everyone's saved. Maybe like Hitler and Stalin and a few others aren't, but pretty much everyone is. And then he would have been able to walk away consoled. Okay, I can keep living the life I'm living. I can enjoy the sins that I enjoy. Uh, as long as I don't cross you know, any big lines, like I should be fine. I should make it to heaven. I should be fine. That could have been a reason why he posed this question to our Lord. We call this by the way, the, the, the first possibility, you know, he was tempted to despair, right? He had lived a life of great sin. This is kind of the flip side of despair, what we call the sin of presumption. Just presuming that it doesn't really matter how I live, God's going to forgive me in the end, and so I can just sort of do, do what I want. That's the sin of presumption. So Jesus' response when he asked this question is very interesting. Again, he doesn't answer it directly. What does he say? He says, strive to enter by the narrow gate. Strive to enter by the narrow gate. When he uses this word gate, it's probable that he was referencing another point in John's gospel where he calls himself the gate. He says, I'm the gate. In other words, anyone who wants to get to heaven has to pass through me. I'm the gate. Also in John's Gospel, he describes himself as the way. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. In other words, if you want to get to heaven, you have to walk the path, which is me. The way to heaven passes through me, Jesus, the Son of God. What does this, what does this have to do with, with the man's question? Well, if the man was coming from one of these two motivations of he was totally preoccupied with his sinful past and all he could think about was just sort of avoiding this point of despair. Or on the flip side, he was looking for reasons to continue to live a sinful life to some degree and be reassured that I'll be saved anyway. Both of these potential motivations are answered by the way that Jesus responds to him because Jesus is saying, stop thinking about yourself first. Stop being just completely obsessed and preoccupied with your sins if he's on the point of despair. Or stop just constantly thinking about what's in it for me. What do I have to do to make sure that I don't go to hell? To make sure that I go to heaven? Jesus says, strive to enter through the gate which is me. Look at me. Take your eyes off of yourself and look at me. This is, this is the solution 
to, to these two potential motivations that, that this man comes with. If he's coming and he's on the point of despair, and if any of you are on the point of despair, you know, I'm always cognizant when I preach that, I, I don't know if I've mentioned this before, it's, sometimes it's very difficult to preach because up here, I know from getting to know many of you, from hearing confessions and other things that like, Everyone in a, in a church on a given Sunday runs the whole gamut. <laughs> Some of you are, are on the point of, of despair, right? hopefully not very many. Others of you are perhaps on the total opposite end of the spectrum where you're more in danger of presuming on God's mercy and, and everything in between. So it's very difficult to preach to everyone. So if this is you, if you're more tending towards this spectrum of despair, you look at your life and you look at your sins and you're just like, is there any hope for me? Am I ever going to get over this sin? Will there be mercy for me? Right? Jesus says, he says, look at me. <laughs> Particularly, he says, look at me on the cross. Do I look like I would run out of mercy for you? When you, when you see Jesus stretched there on the cross, and he is God, and he's just pouring it all out. It's, it's an inexhaustible treasure of mercy. As long as we are repentant, as long as we are sincerely sorry for what we've done, whether we've done the worst atrocities the world has ever seen or not, there's, there's mercy. Right? Those who, who tend in this direction need to be aware that despair is actually a form of pride. Because what despair is, is that it's a perspective that believes that my sins are greater than God's power, which is just an absurd thing to think about. To think that I could possibly do something with, with my own life that would be greater than something that God could do. It's just an extraordinarily arrogant, actually, <laughs> to think that that would be possible. <clears throat> to think that my sins are too much for God to handle. Similarly, despair can be prideful in thinking that God doesn't want to forgive me. That He has no desire to forgive me. My sins are, are so great that God has just completely turned away His face and He has no interest in forgiving me, even if I was contrite. That, that also is just in it. In it inaccurate, first of all. <laughs> God's love for us, in a sense, increases, right? The, the greater our sins are, actually, the more He pursues us. As He tells St. Faustina in her diary, the greater the sinner, the greater a right they have to my mercy. The greater a sinner, the greater a right they have to, to my mercy. So, Jesus, if this is the motivation that the man is coming with, He's saying, Stop being completely just preoccupied with what you've done. Look at what I've done for you. Look at me on the cross. And believe that this is more powerful than your sins. On the flip side, if the man is coming with this motivation of trying to figure out what is the minimum I have to do to escape hell, the solution also that Jesus gives to him is, look at me. Stop looking at what you're going to get out of this life, what you're going to avoid, or what you're going to get with heaven. Like, look at me. Because if you start looking at me on the cross, he says, it will be impossible 
for you to ask this question. Think, think about it for a second. Oftentimes people have this idea in their mind, even if it's not verbalized, although I'll tell you in, in different pastoral contexts, sometimes it is verbalized, where people want to know, Father, like, what's, what's the line when this venial sin becomes mortal, right? There's sort of a, they still have like an attachment or a desire to commit a certain sin, like, I enjoy it, you know, I, I really like this, this particular thing, I don't want to give it up. So how much can I enjoy this thing before I put my salvation in danger? Right? Where's the line? Because I want to enjoy it as much as I can without crossing that line. Because I don't want to go to hell, but, but I, I really want to enjoy this thing as much as I can. If, if you take that question and then you pose it to Jesus as he's on the cross, and you remember that sin is personal, it's not this abstract concept, abstract thing. Imagine somebody on Calvary looking at Jesus, bruised and beaten and bloody, and they say, and they say, Lord, like, how much can I contribute to your pain right now without it becoming a lethal blow? Right? How, would you mind if I just sort of like tap this nail in like a little further? Like, I won't I won't hit it really hard, I'll just kind of tap it. Like, would you mind that? Like, that wouldn't give you a lethal blow, would it? This is, what, this is what we do when we imagine that the Christian life is about, oh, let me enjoy these sinful things. As long as I don't offend God mortally, I'm okay. We forget that the Christian life is about a relationship. It's about a relationship with a real person who existed 2,000 years ago and continues to exist with His glorified body, who continues to be wounded by us when we sin. It's impossible for somebody to ask this question while looking at the Lord and for it to not just come out of their mouth and immediately be recognized as something totally absurd. It would be similar to how, if you imagine a husband sort of asking his wife one night, hey honey, like, how selfish could I be with my time this week before you just like explode? Like, could I be selfish for like one hour in the evening? Like, would that be your breaking point? Or, or could I be selfish for two hours in the evening? Like, would that be your breaking point? Like, where's your breaking point? Because I want to be selfish with my time. Like, I'm not willing to give that up. But I don't, I don't want to like offend you seriously. I don't want to really make you upset. It would be immediate. No, no one would ever ask that. You could never look your spouse in the eye and ask that question. And if, you, if somebody did, it would immediately be obvious that love is completely gone in that relationship. And yet, we play this game with God. <laughs> we, we, we play this game with God, and, and it should be immediately obvious to, to us that, that the love is gone. The love is gone. Same with a wife, you know, if she, if she asks her husband, hey, like, how many, how often could I gossip about you with my friends before you would just be, like, completely feel like you were cut down, you know, once a week? Like, is that the break? <laughs> nobody, nobody would do this. It, it would be obvious that, that, that love is gone. And this is, this is all tied back again to this, this motivation that this man could have been coming with. He, he maybe wanted to hear that 
99% of people are saved so that, okay, I can go off and I can offend the Lord in these little ways. As long as I don't cross this line, I, I should be good, right? He's, he's looking at himself. He's not looking at the Lord. His, his eyes are not, are not fixed on Jesus. So, friends, whether you find yourself more on the end of the spectrum where you're tempted sometimes to despair when you look at your sins, or if you find yourself more on the end of the spectrum where you tend to sort of see how much you can kind of <laughs> get away with before putting your salvation at risk, wherever you are in that spectrum, uh, I just encourage you to peel your eyes away from yourself and to fix your eyes on Jesus Christ. Because this is what the Christian life is, is all about. It's primarily about loving Him, only secondarily about other things. It's primarily about waking up and asking, Lord, how can I love you more today than I did yesterday? And not so much about waking up and saying, how can I make sure today that I don't put my own salvation at risk? It's, it's, this, it's an outward focus on a person who, who loves us and wants us to be with him forever in heaven. I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible, I believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, born of the Father before all ages, God from God, life from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, consubstantial with the Father. Through him all things were made, for us men and for our salvation. He came down from heaven, by the Holy Spirit, was incarnate of the Virgin Mary, became man. For our sake, he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered death and was buried, and rose again on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son is adored and glorified, who has spoken through the prophets. I believe in one holy, Catholic, and apostolic church. I confess one baptism for the forgiveness of sins, and I look forward to the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. We now bring our prayers and petitions before our Heavenly Father. For all the members of the Holy Church of God, that through suffering and endurance they may come to the peace of the kingdom, we pray to the Lord. Lord, hear our prayer. For the governments of nations, that they will respect religious freedom and allow their people to hear Christ's invitation, we pray to the Lord. Lord, hear our prayer. For those who have lost desire for the things of heaven, that they may regain the favor of faith and the joy of the sacraments, we pray to the Lord. Lord, hear our prayer. For all gathered here at this Eucharistic altar, that we may finally come to take our place at the feasts of the kingdom of God, we pray to the Lord. Lord, hear our prayer. For our sick, for those in need, for our bereaved, for the intentions of the parish and the diocese, for these we pray to the Lord. Lord, hear our prayer. And for the dead, that they may find.
light, eternal life in Christ, the way, the truth, and the life. We pray to the Lord. Lord, hear our prayer. Heavenly Father, we bring all these prayers to you, and we ask that you would hear and answer them through Christ our Lord. Amen. 